Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this episode, we're talking about the mythos deity, Hastur. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Again, I still ask myself the same question most days. I'm yet to get a decent answer from the guy in the mirror. I see... Um, that at the time of this episode going out, the Origins Awards are going to be around the corner, like, I think, at the end of the week. And Master of the Arthletep has been nominated as the best RPG supplement there. Yeah, fingers crossed for that one. And coming out soon, we're going to have issue 4B of The Blasphemous Tome. Now, this one, it's not number 5, and it's not number 4, it's 4B, because it's not going to be a print issue, it's going to be an in-between issues, PDF-only collecting some of the material that we've got so you're writing a call of cthulhu scenario for this one yes indeed yes so i'm gonna have a call of cthulhu scenario in it and we've got various bits of artwork and other articles including a story from you scott right yes yeah and some new material that we've got to put into it but issue five will be coming at the end of the year we missed a trick by not doing a 2b well, we can call it 2B if you want, but that would be a very confusing. <laughs> well, then it would be 2B, or is it not 2B? Ah. And now let's move on to the main topic, Mythos Deities, Haster. We're going to talk about the connections between Haster and the King in Yellow, how the two of them got conflated, what their place in the mythos is, and, and how all of this came about. And th- this turned into a bit of a detective story, because if you talk to most Call of Cthulhu keepers and mention the King in Yellow or Haster, they will, because it's in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, it's in the Malleus Monstorum, they'll just think that they're the same entity. Where the hell did all this come from? Who decided this? And the answer is perhaps quite surprising. We talked in the last few episodes about how Haster started out as a god in Ambrose Bierce's story, Hyeta the Shepherd, you know, how Robert W. Chambers picked up on the name, used it in his stories, though he'd never really defined what Haster was. I mean, Haster might have been a star. He was a person in one story, might have been a place. We were never quite sure whether he was a god. Yeah, I was interested to question this. We've had him specifically named as a god. Do we ever have him specifically named as a place or as another thing? Or is it just like we're not really sure if he's something else? In the Chamber stories, he's mentioned in conjunction with place names. He's mentioned in conjunction with star names. There's nothing from the context in those stories that implies he's a god, that implies he's anything other than you know, a place or perhaps a star. But equally, he might be a person, he, he might even be a god in those stories. It's Chambers. He used these names in very vague, evocative ways, you know, pinning them down. I mean, it's, no, but it, what I meant was, did Chambers ever say it was a place? No, 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 no. He he never said. So we're reading that in. That we're reading that place. in. We're we're inferring from context, and the context I think is is fair in that case. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that he's either a place or a star in those stories. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it could be absolutely anything. Is is Chambers? Yeah, because he then uses him again in Mademoiselle Dees as a person. Yes. No lines of dialogue, but just lingering around, carrying a falcon. But that's a fairly mundane person, right? Not a god. Yeah, it's just a guy. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, we had a few listeners contact us, one on Reddit, one on Discord, suggesting that the role he played in that might be more akin to the role that Beas had for the God of the Shepherds. I, I'm not entirely convinced myself, but I, I, I think it's an interpretation. Lovecraft read Chambers' The King in Yellow around 1926 and was very taken with it. He praised it in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, focusing on the yellow sign. In this part of his essay, Lovecraft offers his own interpretation of what the yellow sign might be. This talisman is indeed the nameless yellow sign handed down from the accursed cult of Haster, from primordial Carcosa, whereof the volume treats, and some nightmare memory of which seems to lurk latent and ominous at the back of all men's minds. 
So, yeah, here is Lovecraft talking about a cult of, of Haster. So there is this idea there, perhaps, once again, that Haster is a god. Again, you could almost infer that has been a place, like the cult mm. of Leng or the cult of, insert other mythos place here. Because it, it says, refers to primordial Carcosa, and we know Carcosa is a place, so you could complete the two together. And again, you know, <laughs> everything is ambiguous. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Inspired by this, Lovecraft was moved to name-check elements of the Carcosa mythos in his 1931 story, The Whisperer in Darkness. First he mentioned Haster, then the Yellow Sign and then the Lake of Harley as part of a litany of names. Then he expands on this. There is a whole secret cult of evil men. A man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Haster and the Yellow Sign. Devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. I like the fact it's only injure, it's not kill men, die. (laughs) Yeah, that seems more sinister somehow. (laughs) And that's really it for Lovecraft and Haster. These are the only references in his work. I mean, there are a few other places where he describes things that... Yeah, if you squint at them, could be the king in yellow. So, yeah, the the Chocho Llama of Leng in the fungi from Yogurt is described as a a humanoid entity in a yellow silk mask, I think. Yeah, the the only thing that would go against that maybe is that it's when the hand is revealed and touched, it kind of implies more that it's a moon beast in disguise. Um, well, there's that. There's the veiled king in uh, the Dreamquest of Unknown Cadets. Oh, that's the one I think, I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, that's, so, that's more like it. Right. And yes, yeah, the same kind of description could be the the same entity. There's no explicit connection there to Chambers, the King in Yellow, to Haster or whatever. So if you're playing the game that a lot of us keepers and writers do of trying to connect stuff and use them in different ways, then, yeah, I think it's very tempting to look at those entities and say, yeah, that's the King in Yellow. Yeah, that's Haster. Or they might not be. I Who knows? August Derleth was so taken with Haster that he suggested to Lovecraft that the canon he was creating be called the Mythology of Haster. Lovecraft politely declined. When he did refer to his mythos, he referred to it as Yogsothothri. Later, after Lovecraft's death, Durleth would coin the term that we all know and love, the Cthulhu mythos. It seems really weird to me that anybody looking at Lovecraft's work would suggest the Haster mythos. Yeah, I think this says quite a lot about Derleth, because, I mean, Derleth was the one who elevated Haster to being a great old one. He did this association in a story which we'll talk about in a little bit called The Return of Haster, which Derleth wrote when he was, I think, 17 or 18. So he'd done that by the time he suggested this to Lovecraft, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I think he must have, yeah. I mean, this was towards the end of Lovecraft's life. Derleth had obviously picked up on this name through Lovecraft, and I think he'd read Chambers at this stage, and was very taken with it, thought, obviously, this is an opportunity to put my mark on the mythos. He elevated Haster to this this role where he is Cthulhu's half-brother, this great old one, and creates this the, the series of elemental associations, which we see in some of his later work, which then became part of the larger Cthulhu mythos where Cthulhu is a god of water, for example, Haster is a god of air, and for some reason this difference in elemental associations then makes them rivals or enemies. (laughs) (laughs) It's all very strange. But yeah, I think because this was his pet great old one, he obviously looked at it and thought, oh yeah, this is clearly the most important one, therefore this must be the mythology of Haster, and... Clark Ashton Smith wrote to him um, when I think Derleth was fishing for com- um, compliments from Smith about the return of Haster. Smith, like Lovecraft in a polite fashion, returned a letter with some critique saying, well, I think you could probably do this, 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 and a whole long list of, <laughs> yeah. of saying to, the, to improve the story. And guess what Derleth took on board? None of it. Yeah, if you want to read that, that is actually there in the Haster Cycle book mm-hmm. from Chaosium. They reprint that bit of, of Smith's letter, and it's well worth reading. And because of this conflict between Cthulhu and Haster, Haster is sometimes apparently willing to aid humanity in battles against Cthulhu, his half-brother or, or whatever he is. Yeah, because that's what all the other gods do, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's very strange. <laughs> the protagonists of Derleth's story cycle, The Trail of Cthulhu, receive just that kind of help. 
this is probably where a lot of things like you know, in Call of Cthulhu, you get people who call upon, say, Nodens to get them to help with battles against the mm. Great Old Ones. And, yeah, I mean, there are hints of that, I suppose, in uh, The Strange High House in the Hill um, in, in Lovecraft. Strange High House in the Mist. In the Mist. That's yeah. it. Thank mm. you. Yes. But, you know, this whole idea of calling upon the aids of these eldritch entities to try to win battles against other ones, I mean, that that is really derlith. You know what happened when I tried that in a campaign once? The god got pissed off of me calling him so much, he just ignored me in the end. <laughs> you got ghosted by a great old one. Yep, particularly Nodens. <laughs> now, Derleth refers to him as Haster the Unspeakable, and he who is not to be named... I thought that was a guy without a nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has led some writers deciding that there should be consequences for speaking his name aloud. Yes, just like Voldemort. <laughs> and probably, you know, numerous other things before that. Yeah, I don't think this was unique to, no. to Haster. Lynn Carter wrote a few short pieces which wove together elements from Chambers, Lovecraft and Erleth, laying down much of the mythology of Haster that we see in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, uh, this is collected together in the Haster cycle in one short piece which uh, Robert M. Price titled The Tatters of the King. He draws together three disparate pieces here. One is fragments of a poem cycle called Litany to Haster. And I don't think the poem cycle was ever finished. It's, it's just a, a few verses of it. I heard someone describe it once as Lynn Carter does fungi from Yogoth. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what it is. Lynn Carter does Samalos. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is an endorsement. <laughs> well, that particular one is, yeah, that's it's pretty unreadable. I don't know about unnameable. I think the poem part of it isn't so bad. I don't think it's great poetry, but I think there are some interesting ideas in there. And th- those few verses, I think, have shaped our interpretation of what Haster and the King in Yellow are in Call of Cthulhu more than anything else. There are another couple of parts in there as well. There's a piece which is simply titled Carcosa Story About Harley, which is an unfinished bit of prose, which I guess spells out some elements of the whole thing, but I, I don't know, I found pretty missable. And then his, there's this attempt to sort of flesh out with what James Blish did in More Light and add additional bits of the play there to try to create something a bit more whole. Now let's take a look at what forms does Haster assume. There's a few in Malus Monstorum. The main form is that of a monstrous creature trapped in the Lake of Harley. A titanic aquatic being, tentacled, octopoid, but far, far larger. Ten, twenty times larger than the giant octopus Apollyon of the West Coast. And that's from uh, The Gable Window by Derleth. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the stories that Derleth wrote that spelled out Haster a bit more. And it's responsible, I think, you know, for that core depiction of Haster as being this entity lurking under the Lake of Harley, which crops up over and over again in Call of Cthulhu scenarios and in other stories. But it really comes back to this part. And I mean, I guess, you know, at this point, he is merging elements in from Chambers and Lovecraft. The depiction of, of Haster in this case is a bit like Cthulhu, and it sort of turns the Lake of Harley into almost an analogue for Rillier, this you know, aquatic prison that is holding this great old one. And then there's the Feaster from Afar, taken from Joseph Payne Brennan's story of the same name. Described as black, infinitely old, shriveled and humped, like some kind of enormous airborne monkey, with appendages which resemble tentacles, tipped with knife-like talons. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's airborne monkeys. I was just thinking that's almost like the sloth that uh, almost <laughs> disemboweled you when we played uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Especially enormous airborne monkeys. How can anyone ta- even begin... Is that supposed to be taken seriously? <laughs> this avatar sucks human brains through the skulls of its victims. Wow, it's a brain sucker. A brain-sucking <laughs> flying monkey. <laughs> we had basically just the milkshakes of the gods. It's just kind of reverse of the whole, you know, eating monkey brains thing. Yeah. It only came into existence after they realised that his fellow monkeys were being exploited like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's karma, bitches, manifest. <laughs> 
And then there's an entity that comes out of the Secrets of Japan supplement, which is detailed in Malice Monstorum as well, which is the Emerald Lama, who gets quite a long write-up there and seems to play upon a lot of Buddhist imagery. He is this green-robed, corrupting influence, apparently a Buddhist sage, who offers all sorts of unwholesome forms of enlightenment. In this aspect, he, I mean, he almost seems more like an avatar of Nialathotep. The Dreamland supplement actually puts the priest who is not to be named as an avatar of Nialathotep as mm. well, because they both share a lot of similar features. And then, of course, there's our old friend, the King in Yellow. Yeah, this is the big one, isn't it? This is why we're here, folks. We should do some episodes on him. <laughs> the origins of the King in Yellow being an avatar of Hastur are perhaps kind of lost in the mist of time. It may have originated with Kevin Ross's scenario, Tell Me, Have You Seen the Yellow Sign, from 1989, I think. Mm. We managed to get word from uh, Mr. Ross himself, who is likewise a little unsure about exactly if it was down to him. He's not taking the credit for that. And he says he cannot exactly remember where the idea from the King in Yellow and Hasta are the same entity might have come from. He points us towards Lynn Carter's Litany of Hasta as a possible inspiration. Yeah, I mean, we contacted a few people on Facebook, uh, spoke to Daniel Harms, for example, the author of the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, and, and he wasn't quite sure where it came from. He was quite categorical that it didn't come from Durlith. And this is an interesting thing. I, I think, like many other people, I assumed that it had come out of Durlith. But when I searched Durlith's work for any mention of the King in Yellow, even, let alone avatars or anything like that, I don't think Durlith ever even mentioned the King in Yellow. No, he mentions aspects of elements from the stories, such as Harley Carcosa, yeah. etc. But never does he use the three words King in Yellow in that order. Yeah. I mean, there is a bit in one of the Chamber's stories where he's already talked about the King in Yellow, implied that the King in Yellow is kind of the Lord of Carcosa. And then there's this bit about Hasta, I can't remember the wording, but Hasta having dominion over Carcosa or something like that, which seems to imply that they might be the same thing. But I think fundamentally it all really comes down to Lynn Carter's Litany of Hastur. In verse 11, The Unspeakable, it finishes with the line, Carcosa, where the great Hastur is lord. And in the correspondence that we had with Kevin Ross, he thinks that he might have picked up on that line and just you know, extrapolated, you know, it perhaps even misunderstood it or you know, inferred that it meant that the king in yellow was Hastur. And he wrote that then into Tell Me Have You Seen the Yellow Sign. We also had some feedback from Peter Rolick, who suggested much the same thing, that that one particular line was responsible. Yeah, it seems like this huge part of the mythos, this thing that's influenced countless scenarios since then, comes from perhaps even a misreading or at least a liberal interpretation of one line in a poem. In Call of Cthulhu, most of the magic that's associated with Hastur, and there are several spells, is affected by the position of Aldebaran in the night sky, and Hastur himself being powerless when it is below the horizon. That comes straight out of the return of Hastur. Yes. Yeah. The return of Hastur, as we said, is Durlith's incorporation of Hastur into the Cthulhu mythos, is him redefining Hastur as this great old one. And I think it's fundamentally a pretty fucking awful story. He wrote it when he was about 17 or 18, and it shows. The prose is painful. It takes a lot of the kind of tropes that we take the piss out of in Lovecraft, of, you know, the litany of names of passive observers and stuff like that, and just dials them up to 11. But... On the other hand, it has obviously been hugely influential on Call of Cthulhu, because not only do we have all this stuff, as you mentioned, with the magic associated with Hastur, but you know, it is where things like the, the elemental associations and the rivalry between great old ones and so on comes from. And also this idea, which I don't think is too prevalent in the Call of Cthulhu RPG, but is very prevalent in Durlith, of this fight between good gods and evil gods. So you had the older gods who were the ones who cast the great old ones down and imprisoned them in places like Harley and Rillier. And they're the good guys, and they're the ones you know, who are on our side, who care about humanity. And then you have these evil, you know, almost satanic figures like Cthulhu and, and Hastur, you know, potentially, even though you, know, you can play upon his rivalry with Cthulhu. And I think this is a heroic exercise in missing the point. As much as I was going to say, that's a very polite and uh, tuned-down praise of the story there. <laughs> um, it does have one huge redeeming feature for it. 
it gave us the template of blow the shit up at the end of the story and that is how you solve a Cthulhu scenario. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure it, it was the originator of that template, but no, it is no. a pretty... But also, I mean, you say it shapes how Castor is in Call of Cthulhu. I mean, in that story, he's some weird thing trudging around tunnels below the house. I don't really see Hasta like that and I don't really see that the whole idea of the elemental themes comes through in the game at all. Well, what we do have in both that story and in uh, Witch's Hollow, which is another one of Durlis' stories, one of his supposed posthumous collaborations with Lovecraft, what you have in these two stories is the idea that Hasta possesses people. So he's sort of possessing this corpse in uh, The Return of Hasta, mm. and he's possessing this this backwards woman uh, who lives out Dunwich Way. Something in... called Down from the Stars. Yeah. Um, yeah. Possessing her in a very corporeal manner. She's described as being grotesquely fat, and when Hasta leaves her body, it sort of deflates her that, you know, this, there was this sort of monstrous mass living inside her, sort of stretching her out. There's another great thing about that story as well. Not only does it introduce us to the Elder Sign and kicks off oh, the yes. whole star tree thing, because mm. it very much describes them as being five-point stars, point stars yeah. puts them all around the building to, um, to make this anticlimactic, oh, I'm going to get out the window. No, I'm not, because there's an Elder Sign there. I'm going to go for a door. No, there's an Elder Sign there. So <laughs> it just sits down, and he burns the house down! <laughs> <laughs> but she also introduces that idea of pressing elder signs onto people, the mm-hmm. possessed woman in this case, you know, using it against her like a crucifix against a vampire in a fucking hammer film. I, I was expecting almost a hallelujah, brother, she is free! kind of <laughs> spiel at that point. Oh, God. So, yes, I think it's fair to say most of the things that I don't like in Call of Cthulhu come from Durlith. Yes. Uh, I don't know where you're finding those things in Call of Cthulhu, Scott. That's what I'm wondering. Uh, oh, God. I certainly remember playing Call of Cthulhu in the 1980s with people who... Who did that? Who, who, yeah, yes, but that exactly. was your game in the 1980s, 30-odd <laughs> years ago. That wasn't... That's, you can't say that's Call of Cthulhu. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Maybe You can have any mis- game and you have a weird experience in it. But maybe this is me misremembering it. But yeah, I, I think because you had the older sign spell and the older sign as artifacts in there, and they did turn up in certain scenarios, that people were encouraged, you know, or at least moved to use them in that way. I'm wondering if they were using deities and demigods rather than uh, Call of Cthulhu, because <laughs> we'll come on to that. Thinking of a mechanical point from that story as well, the guy has a bag full of Elder Signs. He must have sacrificed all <laughs> yeah. his fucking power to get that. He's like, hey, I don't mind lose about losing five power. Hey, I've got another stone. I'll he, got a job lot. he got a job lot down the market. <laughs> <laughs> You, you get bulk discounts on your pals. Yeah, there's a guy selling them up in me a car boot. <laughs> Actually, do you think you could do that? Actually make Elder Signs and sell them? <laughs> what, if you, what if you were making actual genuine ones? Could you sell them? Would anybody buy them? Now let's take a look at what entities are associated with Haster. Well, I think one of the first creatures that people think of as being associated with Hasta in Call of Cthulhu is the Bayaki. And again, I was really interested to try to work out where this association came from, because it wasn't there in Durlith, it wasn't there in Chambers or Lovecraft. And it does seem to be, again, Lynn Carter, that litany of Hasta, where he has that throwaway bit in, I mean, it's the same verse, where he says, that grim, stupendous, bat-winged Bayaki... Come from the cloudy shores of Lake Harley, black-furred and iron-beaked with eyes of hell. And then there's the crawling ones. These humanoid conglomerations of worms from Lovecraft's story, The Festival. Possibly because of the link with Bayaki, the Malleus Monstorum associates them with Hasta. I guess there's a an urge to kind of throw out links to people because mm. then they can spin off those to create their own games and stories if you see some sort of links between things. And I, I think this is something we keep going back to in the podcast, which is just because something like that is in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook or the Malleus Monstorum or whatever, don't take it as gospel. I mean, you know, it... it, it <clears throat> Someone has, has obviously at some stage looked at that connection with the Bayaki and thought, oh, right, okay, it all ties in, and thought it was useful to their scenario. If it's not useful to your scenario, if you've got a different interpretation and so on, you are not beholden to that. It's not there in the source material. Even if it were, you can recreate it. This stuff is meant to be used in novel ways. Yeah, I must admit, I, I thought that was a surprising one, because I've never really pegged crawling ones as being related to any one particular deity. Mm, no. I'd, I'd always pegged them as very much, they're their own thing. This is just one way that a sorcerer can evolve and potentially cheat death. 
And then we have the Spawn of Haster. Like their sire, the Spawn of Haster are never clearly described except to say that they are octopoidal and have unspeakably hideous faces. One rare depiction shows them to have an almost skull-like face. The Spawn of Haster are aquatic, or at least amphibious, as they are only ever mentioned as appearing with the unspeakable one in the foul and murky Lake of Harley. So you're going to encounter them a lot in this scenario then, aren't you? I mean, this seems a good excuse to throw something into the scenario that is Hasta, but something you can fight, because you yeah. can't really take on Hasta, I guess, a god. But we want some minions from him to put into a scenario. Yeah, and I think this is very much something that came out of Call of Cthulhu as opposed to the fiction, so... And then, of course, let's not forget the cults. If there's a god, there's going to be a cult, right? <laughs> well, there should be. Yeah. Apparently, Hasta is worshipped by the Chocho. We mentioned in the previous episode, there's that great story in Dark Theatre's story collection, the mm-hmm. Delta Green collection, mm-hmm. entitled Suicide Watch. And that features the Chocho really effectively with a really good spellcaster. Mm-hmm. The Chocho are another thing that I think Derleth seized upon out of Lovecraft, because Lovecraft makes a passing reference to the Chocho in, I think it's The Whisper in Darkness, so don't hold me to that. And Derleth, being Derleth, took that and extrapolated it. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we think of as being the Chocho comes from Derleth. He specifies them as being worshippers of Hastur, and that's where the whole thing comes from. However, apart from them, my personal favourite of the cults has to be the Brotherhood of the Yellow Sign that came out of Call of Cthulhu. They're a great bunch. So what, what is it that appeals to you about them? On the surface, you could take them as, hey, they're just a bunch of actors. They're, they seem like a normal group of everyday artists and such that have a nice veneer of creativity in society. And no, they're actually puff up mad. <laughs> you obviously didn't go to a college where there were drama students, Matt. God, no. they're more like the latter. <laughs> Sorry, any drama students or actors out there. I, I keep thinking of that line from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is, we're actors, we're the opposite of people. <laughs> <laughs> And a book that both Paul and I have read uh, certainly features the cult of the Yellow Sign quite prominently, and that is Illuminatus by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. They are sort of the main antagonists in there. They are this sort of corrupting force bringing the wrong kind of chaos and madness to the world as opposed to the right kind, which, you know, the protagonists are bringing in there. It's a profoundly weird set of books. I'd like to think there'd be a cult of Hasta in Illuminati, the old Steve Jackson game as well. I mean, there was a cult of pretty much everything. Oh, yeah. We've mentioned the cattle mutilators before. I don't know if there was one, but if there wasn't, there should be. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Let's move on and take a look at how the Hasta mythos is used in gaming. Well, I'm pretty sure we've said him more than, uh, more than four times, so there's no point breaking out your percentile dice now. He was first set up in Deities and Demigods with a note in there, or the subtitle, He Who Must Not Be Named, literally giving a 25% chance of 1d4 Bayaki appearing every time his name is uttered. Uh, if these are defeated, however, there's a further dick move of having a 25% chance of Hastur himself appearing. I mean, this is somewhat of an arcane tome itself, because it was only in the first edition of Deities and Demigods. If you just pick up a, an everyday edition, it's not going to be there. It's only in those fabled first editions, because then there was some controversy over the licensing of the Cthulhu uh, mythos deities and so on. Well, and, so also, they were, and also the Borcock ones. Yeah, yeah, so they were they were all expunged from later editions. Sorry, we're saying deities and demigods without saying what game line is for. We're assuming everyone knows. I and mean, This was one of the uh, early supplements for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. It's interesting to me that you've got this bit of gamer lore which is handed down through gaming groups, which obviously comes out of this, which is, if you say the name of Hasta three times, he'll appear. This is like a variant of the Bloody Mary myth, where if you say Bloody Mary three times while looking into a mirror, she'll appear. Or even Beetlejuice from the film, Beetlejuice. Or Candyman, isn't it? Yeah, that Candy, as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Candyman. Well, I mean, was inspired by the Bloody Mary myth and taken out of the uh, the yeah, Clive Bloody Parker Mary story thing is a pretty American thing, right? Because it's not something I'd encountered until Candyman. I don't yeah, think. but Candyman, like I say, came out of Clive oh, Barker's sure, sure. story, The Forbidden, which was set in Liverpool. So obviously, you know, Barker had grown up with some variant of that. Mm. Yeah, I think Bloody Mary is. Uh, there's various roots of where the legend comes because one of the roots for it is supposed to be that it's Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, it's oh, her okay. spirit. But this thing, as you say, Scott, is yeah. if you do mention Hasta pretty much to any gaming group, 
I'm mm. pretty sure there are people at the table there, they don't know anything about Hasta, but all they know is this Hasta, Hasta, Hasta thing. It's yeah. almost formed a meme before memes were a thing, you know, when we talk about memes on, on computers as they're perceived nowadays. It seemed to be around <laughs> You said it's so middle-aged when you said that. Yeah. Well, no, me- but I mean... Me- memes, memes, they're on computers now. <laughs> well, they are, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just the way you said it, Paul. <laughs> necessarily tied to computers, but that's... Uh, what it's very yes. much come to mean. Or, or like a gaming urban legend, a bit like yeah. the, head, the head of yeah. Vecna. Yeah, mm. yeah, but more so, I'd say. I'd, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting is that exact interpretation of it doesn't seem to come from any game supplement. It's extrapolated from that AD&D version, which in turn obviously is inspired by the fact that it is Hastur the Unspeakable, or he who should not be named. But there is nothing in there or anywhere else that I've ever seen that specifically says, if you say hasta, 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 bad shit happens. Ironically, this trope about saying hasta, hasta, hasta and him appearing seems like the strongest thing about hasta. Because all of the other things about him just seem to me personally it doesn't really have a strong identity i guess they all seem a bit loose and it's fine that's that's fine you can sort of take him and make him how you want in your story but it's very much for you to do the legwork and actually make something of hasta but the hasta 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 him appears you can get to grips with that well i think there are two definitive things that are in gaming about hasta one is that and the other is that he's the king in yellow and neither of these things come from the fiction but then when he's the king in yellow He's not already Hasta anymore, because he's the king in yellow now, to me. Mm. That's not Hasta, is it? Certainly better than Squelchy Feet. But Hasta has been used quite a lot in Call of Cthulhu. He may not be the most used entity, but particularly because of the association with the king in yellow, he does crop up quite a lot. We've mentioned Kevin Ross's Oh Say, Have You Seen the Yellow Sign? And that really does seem to be a foundational piece in this whole thing, because not only did it probably originate this whole idea of the king in yellow being an avatar of Haster, but it also gave us the visual representation of the yellow sign that we see everywhere. Mm, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very strong thing. I mean, that's the yellow sign, not necessarily Haster, but... But also, I think that Kevin Ross's rephrasing, he's changed it from Chambers's have you found the yellow sign to Mm. have you seen the yellow sign? And it makes me think, actually, that phrase of Chambers is really cool because have you actively found it? It's like an active thing. Whereas if you've seen it, it's just a kind of passive, oh, you've seen it. Well, except even in the the yellow sign story, it's not an active thing. They haven't necessarily gone out and looked for it. It's fallen into their laps. But it seems more than just that they've seen it they've found it it's yeah it's actually been placed into their hands or she physically found it in the street and she gives it to him there's also an element there of when you can interpret find as being have you understood rather than again seen being passive oh yeah i saw the road sign out oh Oh, yeah yeah, Yeah, potentially like that but yeah but have you found its true meaning Mm, very good But Ross's interpretation there does fundamentally change things as well, because if we think about the way the yellow sign is used in Chambers, in the yellow sign story, the characters, as you say, don't just see. It intrudes into their lives. It changes things. It's a much more personal, intimate association with the yellow sign. In The Repair of Reputations, seeing it doesn't necessarily have an effect. It's there as a a symbol of authority or some kind of mark. But it's not like, you know, you show the yellow sign to someone and it it imprints something upon their psyche or opens them up to some horror from beyond. And I think that very much comes from Kevin Ross. I think it very much comes from D&D. You know, in D&D, you've got glyphs and wards, Mm. which are, you know, inscribed on a wall or whatever, and you see it and it does something, explodes or whatever. And the yellow sign is kind of like that. It's something you see and it has an effect. I don't know if that was in his mind, but... Yeah, I don't know. Then the following year, we have uh, Tatatamalian, which came out uh, as part of Fatal Experiments, written by Richard Watson, Penelope Love. This, I think, may be the origin, certainly within Call of Cthulhu, of the very common trope of people performing the King in Yellow, because that, that doesn't happen in Ross's scenario. And it's not something we see an awful lot in the source fiction either. I think now when you think of The King in Yellow as a play in Call of Cthulhu, the vast majority of scenarios that involve it involve some attempt to perform it. I think the obvious reason for that is if you're putting on a play, it involves a troupe of players. So it's the obvious thing to get a gaming group together. 
because either you've got a bunch of NPCs that are putting it on or the player characters themselves are recruited to put it on. So that gaming-wise, that seems a very good fit. It also plays in very much with the classic Call of Cthulhu trope of there is this cult or this group of people who are performing this ritual that is going to do something bad and we need to stop it. No, and- let it happen. <laughs> I'll be in the front row seat with popcorn. But yeah, I mean, ever since then, I mean, there have been you know a fair number of scenarios that have done this. I mean, you've you've written one, haven't you, Matt? Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tried to put a bit of a different spin yes. on it, admittedly. But yeah, I mean, certainly when I was the line editor for World War Cthulhu, I published two like that. And then in the Unspeakable Oath issue one from 1990, John Tynes has his essay, The Road to Harley, which forms a precursor to the Delta Green essay entitled The Hasta Mythos yep. from Delta Green Countdown. That would have been a great Bing Crosby Bob Hope film. <laughs> I would have watched that. Yes. <laughs> in those works, John Tynes puts forth the idea that Hasta is a force of entropy and that Carcosa is somewhere that can impose itself over any city. Well, more than that, that Carcosa is chaotic, uh, unpredictable, not, not really malleable, but that it is different every time you look at it, that the streets shift, that a building or a person or a place will change, the topography will change, the architectural style will change, you'll get intrusions of strange things in there. It was just done deliberately to wind up the people who tried to make a map at the game table during scenarios, mm. wasn't it? This whole idea of of Hasta as a force of entropy, he specifically states in there that Hasta isn't a god, that it's not like you've got this great old one which has become a force for entropy in the universe, that it is simply a name that cultists give to entropy. So in that respect, it's not really any different from our universe, that things fall apart, Things grow colder, they slow down, and they die. You can almost look at it in a parallel to Yogg-Sothoth being a manifestation of time and space. That, again, it's just a fundamental building block of the way the universe was constructed. Or Azathoth being the Big Bang, according to... Mm. Was that Brian Lumley? Yeah. And then we've got what has perhaps become the definitive King in Yellow scenario. I'm not sure if it's the definitive Asta one. Mm. Tatters of the King, the name kind of gives it away there, by Tim Wiseman. You two are much more familiar with this than I am. Oh, you, you ran it some time back, didn't you, Paul and Matt? Yeah, I ran it a few mm-hmm. years ago at the club and had a lot of fun with it. Matt took on the role of the ever-enthusiastic book reader <laughs> and uh, very active interest in the occult and the Cthulhu mythos to the degree that there's a bit in there when the, <laughs> the baddies, if you like, the cultists, are scripted in the book to summon nasty creatures and do horrible things. I didn't need to do that because Matt (laughs) passes me a note saying, I'm going into the woods to summon, in inverted commas, those exact same nasty creatures. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'll dispense with those NPCs. It made perfect sense, damn it. (laughs) It it would have made perfect sense to the NPCs, I'm sure. They would have used the same argument. So it just happened to be another half of the bloody PC group that were at the location uh, at the time. (laughs) Just following Hasta's orders. What do you two think the Tatters of the King brings to the interpretation of Hastur and the King in Yellow within Call of Cthulhu? I mean, I remember it more about the King in Yellow than about Hastur. Yeah, there's, there's really no reference to Hastur, I think. I'm pretty sure there is some reference to Hastur in the book. But again, it's one of those where it's called Tatters of the King. It's not called Tatters of Hastur. So it's very much about the King in Yellow who, you know, I think in the book is a manifestation, or, you know, an avatar of, of Hastur. I don't want to give spoilers for it, but... There's definitely some memorable moments in, in there, particularly, again, without trying to go into spoiler territory, the thing is divided up. It's into three acts, isn't it? The first one has a lot of imagery, but I think a lot of players will identify with as being not going over old ground, but ones that would be iconic to The King in Yellow. The other two parts, not so much. It features on other aspects of the god and again kind of draws in that Dalathian kind of relationship between other gods as well and how that there's friction between them for myself i felt the first part set in britain was by far the strongest and that's the part i, own, I enjoyed running the most mm-hmm. and it does involve carcosa doesn't it oh I, hell yeah oh yeah I, the interpretation of carcosa that it presents is it much like ones you've seen in other places or does it 
do something uh, kind of uses the one from i'm not sure who originated this but the one described in perhaps more light and thomas rings play and so on so it's very much camilla and casilda and there's a lot less of the weirdness that tyne's interpretation brings mm. it's not a case of i'm going to look down one street and then look away and then look back down it again and it's either gone or it's something completely different it's very much more set in stone that the arch- the architecture and at least when i remember playing it that there wasn't so much of that weirdness of like corridors bending around on themselves or other spatial distortions i think some of that is in there i maybe didn't play that up so much but it was what it wasn't wasn't a city superimposed over another city as i recall it was more bought into a manifestation yeah you you could summon it to somewhere where there wasn't anything already yeah And the other campaign that uses elements of the King and Yellow in perhaps interesting ways is John Wick's Curse of the Yellow Sign. I mean, I've not played it, I've only skim-read it. It's basically three linked scenarios in different time periods, one during the run-up to the Second World War, one in the modern day, and one far-future science fiction thing. It uses the King and Yellow in some interesting ways and in you know, very sort of horror movie situations. It's it's much less of a classic Call of Cthulhu investigation and more, you are characters in a horror movie, shit's going to happen. Now, admittedly, I haven't played through it, but I got the impression that Ripples from Carcosa, the uh, collection done by Oscar Rios, was a similar kind of setup. Mm. That mm. it was three different time periods, three otherwise relatively separate scenarios, but there could be a little bit of a thread between them. The first one is Invictus, second one's Dark Ages, and then there's a far future science fiction. Mm -hmm. And finally, let's take a look at how we might use Hasta in our gaming. Obviously, a lot of our interpretation of Hasta comes from Derleth. Are we particularly drawn to Derleth's vision of of Hasta? Nope. Well, I think we've already addressed that. (laughs) Not not particularly. I don't find it particularly compelling. I I mean, in terms of what version of Hasta one would use... I don't really find there are any strongly identifiable ones aside from the king in yellow. Or or it's just this amorphous octopoid thing which you can kind of do what you like with, but you could call that anything, really. You could call it Asta, you could call it something else. If it doesn't have a an identity already from fiction, then you're just pinning a name on something that yeah, that's fine. I mean you can do that in your scenario. You've got a new thing and you call it Asta. That's perfectly reasonable. I think the only thing I would pull upon from Durless work, and I think it's a throwaway epithet in the Gable window, is the vast lord of interstellar spaces. Yes. That is about the only thing that sparks my imagination from from Durless depiction. Squelchy Feet does nothing. The throwaway, again, references in connection with Harley, Carcosa, again, not enough to go on. But that evocative line, that gives me an idea of something I could tangibly use. So what might you do with that, Matt? thinking that there's kind of a spin on Tynes' idea that it's entropy. But what if it's nothingness? Looking at interstellar space, there is just void that's just constantly expanding where there is nothing inside it, apart from your occasional wandering, gribbly, star vampire or other, other obscure creature. But what if it was, instead of just being entropy, what if it was a manifestation of nothing, of void, of complete absence of everything? <laughs> I, I, I kind, have kind, written that scenario. Kind of like the space between, yeah. Yes. <laughs> The problem for the Dolithian interpretation for me is, you know, this whole idea of interacting with humans, I find difficult to take seriously. It might be possible to do a fairly comic scenario along those lines. And I'm drawn to things like William Browning Spencer's uh, resume with monsters, where the character has a personal relationship with Azathoth towards the end of the novel. Or even Neil Gaiman's short story, I, Cthulhu, where you've got this weary Cthulhu just sort of narrating his life story to Professor Armitage. They turned me into plushies. (laughs) That should have been the punchline to it. And, And yeah, I know, I'm, I'm just imagining this Hasta with an identity crisis, trying to work out what he is, whether he's a whether he's a god, whether he's a play, whether he's a place, just unburdening himself. You know, so I, I don't even know what I am these days, guys. I, do you ever feel like you're just a character in a play, going through the motions? <laughs> Some people put a crown on my head, other people don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure they treat me like a king, but other times they just treat me like I'm pond scum. <laughs> So we've got the John Tynes version that we've talked about, it being a manifestation of the force of entropy. I think I'm expressing that correctly. Mm. That's kind of hard to actually do something with. If it's not an entity that you can converse with or interact with, it's just entropy. Like you said, Scott, that's we've kind of already got entropy. Yeah, but I guess what we've got is a fairly steady flow of entropy. 
But if you had someone who was able to draw upon the power of Hastur, either through magic or through, you know, maybe even becoming an avatar of that form, that would actually be potentially quite terrifying that if their very presence would suck the light and the warmth out of the room, you know, everything just started crumbling around them. That, so I mean, basically that, it's a, a Pulk Cthulhu character with a disintegration ray. That's <laughs> what we're talking about there. Well, well okay, yes. They've yeah. got a death ray bubble around them. <laughs> I can get suddenly getting on board with this. <laughs> Well, and also we've got the idea of Hasta as a meme, almost. You know, this whole, you know, saying Hasta, 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 drawing upon his power, inviting danger. Yeah, I, I was thinking that you could have a bit of fun with that. I had the idea that perhaps you have a group of people who are even trying to fight Hasta, or at least you know, render him harmless. And what better way of doing that than by spreading his name as widely as possible? Uh, turning it into, say, a Twitter hashtag or something like that, or getting as many people as possible to say his name over and over again. So that if you go with Derleth's idea from uh, Witch's Hollow or The Return of Haster, that he's actually possessing people, maybe, you know, everyone just ends up with a little bit of Haster inside them and, and he's just so spread out that he can't really do anything anymore does almost riff off what we discussed in previous episodes about particularly about the yellow sign the story this is rather than the symbol mm-hmm. where tessie sits down reads part of the second act and then immediately is kind of drooling in a corner that what if it's just language and that combination of those particular sounds is enough to have that effect mm. so there is no god it is just that combination of sound or that combination of lettering put together. Well, it's a bit unfortunate that it's just a two-syllable word then. And it also means that anyone whose name is Hester is fucked. (laughs) Just be mispronounced slightly and boom! (laughs) I wonder if you could do something with that meme about saying Hester, 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 rather than your players saying it at the table and you as keeper rolling your eyes and saying oh no not again um <laughs> you know whether you could like the maybe keep falls a, outside yeah keep a tally of when the players actually say it whether it's in character or not and then in a kind of meta kind of way impose something on the players that's you know, very much in keeping with the Beetlejuice interpretation of it. And I don't know if either of you ever saw the American uh, comedy series Community. Yes, some uh, of it. I, th- there is this fantastic background gag in it where over the course of a few episodes, Beetlejuice's name comes up three times. And the third time, I think it's a Halloween episode or something like that, just as someone mentions the name Beetlejuice for the third time in the entire series, there is someone dressed as Beetlejuice who just walks by in the background. Mm. <laughs> Oh, I hadn't picked that one up. <laughs> but as you mentioned, Paul, obviously the big one here is the play. What, what interesting things could you do with the play in Call of Cthulhu terms? I like the idea of doing stuff with the characters from the play rather than the play itself. So have them try to escape from Carcosa as, as they are living beings trapped in this eternally sort of recyclical hell that they're trying to break out into the real world, but they're only finding that they can escape so far as the boundaries of Carcosa go with them. So whatever escape, in inverted commas, they get is actually just a false rescue. But also then potentially other people taking their place and becoming new characters in a play. But yeah, mm. play, play around with identity as well, rather than the focus on the, the people in the play rather than the events or trying to go, hey, you get on stage and memorise your lines. I think I'm more in, drawn to jettisoning a lot of the play or the set dressing of the play, as we see with many reinterpretations of Shakespeare's plays, where they put them in, you know, you see a modern day rendition of, I don't know, Macbeth or Hamlet or something, or I think you can represent the play in that way. I've kind of already done this once, but I find reworking those same old elements of the play in, if people aren't familiar with it, then it's just goes over their heads and, and if they, they are, are familiar with it, seen it before yeah they're like oh yeah. we know what this is so I, I would just give it a, a totally fresh approach i think you can keep the effect of the play but just express it through a different medium yeah and one that occurs to me is you know what if um you know the whole idea of the king in yellow being an avatar of Hasta? what if it's not the entity from the play that's the avatar but the play itself the play which obviously has been pinned down put on paper in you know the book that was going around paris and uh, new york in the 1890s but what if that is the embodiment the representation of the god itself and that you know is is not 
entirely contained with that. Uh, the, it erupts out of that. It erupts out of its fictional or, or literary state into the real world sometimes. That it doesn't need a troupe to perform it. That it just you know, happens. I was thinking of things like uh, the Magic Theatre from Hermann Hesse's Steppenwolf, where you had this sort of magical theatre that pops up at some stage and this sign outside saying, for madmen only, and the protagonist finds himself drawn into it and is transformed by his experiences there. This sort of mystical theatre or this mystical travelling troupe, almost like the troupe from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, is actually just this manifestation of the god making itself known and also, as we've seen, you know, the Chocho supposedly worship uh, Hasta, you know, the Migo might. If that's the, the case, I mean, do they have their own versions of the play? I mean, what would a Migo production of The King in Yellow look like? Lots of buzzing and lots of lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they'd have cool special effects, right? Okay, here's, here it is. The King in Yellow as a prog rock opera. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. God. It's kind of the court of the Crimson King, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Appropriate enough with your T-shirt, which the listeners oh, yeah. can't see. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to a lot of people. We would like to say thank you, obviously, to everyone who listens to the podcast. We would like to say thank you to the people who back the podcast, and we have a few new people to thank. Yes, and at the $1 level, we got a big thank you going out to John Matthew DeFoggy. Indeed. Thank you very much, John Matthew. Yeah, thank you very much, John Matthew. And next to the $1 level, we have Ludovic Chavant. Hopefully I'm getting your name right there, Ludovic. So thank you very much. Yep, thank you very much, Ludovic. Thank you very much, Ludovic. And now we're moving on to the $3 level, where we not only say thank you, but we give you a hearty toast. So thank you and cheers to Michael Gilbert. Thank you very much, Michael, and cheers. Hey, cheers, Michael. And we have a new Great Cthulhu backer. So at the Behold Great Cthulhu level, Jörg Sterner has stepped in to what had become a vacant slot. Hey, thank you very much, Jörg. Well, Behold! Yes, thank you. And, and yes, it's not just Cthulhu who's great. <laughs> thank you very much. Then we move up to the $5 level. You know what this means, Matt? Audio torture to follow. So our first victim of, I say in inverted commas, song today is William Plumridge. So, thank you very much, William, and brace yourself. Well, thank you very much, William, and yes, enjoy. Thank you, William. Come on, come on fellas, quick, gather round the mirror. William, William, William! Plumridge, Plumridge, Plumridge! Thank you, thank you, thank you! Thank you, thank you, thank you! Oh, there he is. And now we move on to another song for Mike Diamond. So, yes, thank you, Mike, and uh, we, we hope this gives you, well, tingly feelings. Thank you, Mike. Hope you enjoy this lovely tune. You do not want to know what expression was on Scott's face when he said tingly things. <laughs> that was just worrying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah thank you. Thanks, Mike, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely brace yourself for this one. Thank you. On social media. It's that time again. People have been saying things out there in this weird world of social media. Steve Wacker over on Facebook says, um, this is in regards to our Keeping Cthulhu Fresh episode that we recently did. My last, like, ten years of role-playing has been actively trying to shake it up. I have a soft rule where I refuse to play the same character twice. That'd be interesting for campaign play. Mm. <laughs> what, every week a new character? Yeah. I don't think he means that, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I, I now want to play that campaign. <laughs> Just play a regular Call of Cthulhu character in the pulp version of Mask and Arlantep, <laughs> and yes. you'll be fine. You're a new character every 
pretty regularly. I will assign races in class to a die roll and determine every part of the sheet, whether it be ranks in skills or which skills to use. I find it to make more organic characters and really enjoy the constant change-up. Well, you definitely get that in masks if you yeah. try it there. <laughs> that sounds like a kind of an OSR approach. You've mm. got a load of charts and tables and you just kind of roll and, and see what comes up. I have a... Roll dice. Fish arm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we did talk about the idea of how playing pre-gens could give you, you know, really unexpected challenges, and this, yeah, I guess is very much in the same spirit of that. Yeah, I can but... see that fish arm causing some challenges. <laughs> Do you also get fish fingers? You get web feet. <laughs> <laughs> and over on our Discord server, Avita said. I just wanted to comment how I'm 100% with Paul on playing new characters. Impersonation has worked wonders for me, and typically, until I found a voice, usually literal, I can draw upon for inspiration. My characters float around. That's an interesting thing. I, I don't remember exactly what you said, Paul. I'm sure you do. But Yeah, I think my point was sort of latching into an archetype made it easier for me to, as, as a sort of a springboard and then usually once i start playing them i mean i started playing a new game last sunday of fifth ed D, and i'm playing a, a half orc barbarian called egil and i've got some ideas but it's not really until i start playing them that i discover what the character is to me mm. i have a few ideas but i don't really stick with them and and now i've got this goblin scarf that i wear and when i say goblin scarf i mean a goblin my two worries is scarf. Yeah. Still alive, and it talks to me. <laughs> it's my friend. But that whole idea of finding the voice, it's not something I do myself, but I've played a number of games now with Joe Trier from How We Roll, and he has said a number of times that he can't really get into a character until he finds a unique and distinctive voice for them. Usually something that irritates the fuck out of me and makes me want to kill the character on sight, but he, he will find this unique voice, and that for him is an essential part of finding out who the character is. Hello, folks, I've come to join your... A formless horn runs over you! <laughs> it's, it's, you have been listening, then, to the... <laughs> And Dr. Colossus1 on Reddit says, For the question at the end, how to keep the podcast fresh, I find it still delivering fresh insights and troubling discoveries every episode. That should so be our tagline, troubling discoveries. <laughs> yes, I, we really ah. appreciate that. Thank you, and we're, we're glad we continue to trouble you. Again, you don't want to see the expression on Scott's face when he says that. <laughs> you just don't want to see Scott's face, really. No. It's face for podcasting. He wears no mask. Yeah, but that's a bad thing. <laughs> well then, to wrap things up, what do we think the appeal of Haster as a mythos deity is? Well, going back to what we alluded to earlier in the episode, suddenly something else struck me. You know how Voldemort has no nose, and he's also he who should not be named? How does he smell? Yeah, pretty awful. <laughs> but no, what was the name of the family in Witch's Hollow? And what was the title of one of the members of the family? He was Wizard Potter. Oh. <laughs> I'm wondering if it had an influence on someone else. I, I'd like to think so, but no. <laughs> What's the appeal of Hasta as a deity, though? Well, I'd say, is there an appeal? Because I don't really get that much of a, an appeal. I think we can sort of say that the King in Yellow is an avatar of Hasta. I'm not really sure what that gains us beyond just saying it's the king in yellow because when you do have that you just got the king in yellow and having hasta as a thing in itself it can be this kind of weird octopoid thing or this, this giant flying monkey a giant <laughs> flying monkey or some squelchy thing underground wandering around you know writing a letter to cthulhu i don't know i'm not really feeling it i mean i would do a scenario maybe and put hasta in it but if i did that it'd be my very much my own take on what Hasta would be. Yeah, and I think I'm of the same, particularly the, the last part there with Paul's interpretation, that there's not enough really to draw an appeal on. Like I mentioned earlier, there's that one line of being that he's the lord of vast interstellar spaces that I could potentially make my own version of it with, but that's not inherently already laid out in the source fiction that there is, at the minute, just not enough, really, that is there to grab you. Yeah, I, I think, for me, the appeal is that he's sort of a palimpsest, 
the, that you've got this sort of core idea that has been built over and people have, have laid other layers of meaning over it. And at any point you can sort of strip these back or you know examine the different meanings that people have put on, like Tynes's interpretation or Ross's interpretation. But also underneath it all, there is this amorphous thing that you can adapt in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I mean, that's not really any different from just making your own shit up. I suppose it can be coloured by the other interpretations that people have put on. So like you you were saying with the the void between the stars, or the idea of him being entropy, or finding different creative ways of using that dual nature of him in The King in Yellow. These are things that... I think the fact that they don't fit together well, the fact that they don't necessarily make sense, is for me more of an inspiration. If something is too well defined, if something is too well laid out, then I'm not interested. But if it's contradictory or poorly defined or doesn't seem to fit together properly, then that really gets me going. I think the only reason I would really use Hastor, I think, is if I were doing a King in Yellow, Carcosa-style story, and then it would seem almost obligatory to have Hastor manifest in that, whether it's a place of God or whatever, but the name Hastor appear in that would totally make sense. Hmm. Um, But if you divorce it from that, then I'm not really sure what I'd do with it particularly, beyond, you know, what I'd do with anything else. And I guess the other thing that appeals to me is that I do find particularly the Delethian interpretation so ludicrous that I, I think there's plenty of scope in there for taking the piss. The one time I have used Hasta in a scenario, I've done so pretty much in a, a satirical manner, using it as a way of exploring certain tropes which I think can be badly done in Call of Cthulhu and just not quite playing them for laughs, but at least very tongue-in-cheek. Are they worse than a flying monkey? Really? I, I didn't think to put the flying monkey in there, and I really deeply regret that now. Yeah, until the next flying monkey, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.